Our reading is in Luke 20, 20 through 26. So they watched Jesus and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and render to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. This is the word of the Lord. Well, today we're getting into Luke 20 and looking at how Jesus is Lord over Caesar. This passage has formed the background of Christian political thought for the entire history of the church. Whether Christians have been in the Roman Empire, whether they've been in nation-states in Europe or Africa or Asia or in the Americas, and even today, these five verses are a core part of what it means to be a Christian in the nations of this world. And I think they're a really important section of Scripture for us to reflect on this season as we head up to the presidential election. Because there's a lot of debate about what role your faith should play in your political life and in the political life of this country. And sometimes people say that um, Christians should divorce their political uh, beliefs from their faith. After all, look at what's happened this week with a couple other countries and a couple other religions in the world. This is sort of an under-the-radar news story, but maybe you've heard that in Turkey over the last number of months, President Erdogan has made a decision to convert the uh, museum of the Hagia Sophia, a traditional Christian um, Byzantine cathedral that's also been a Muslim mosque at different points in history, and has more recently, for the last number of decades, been a museum. He's wanted to convert it back into a Muslim mosque. And a lot of people see this as the inevitable consequence of Erdogan's attempt to make Turkey not a secular state anymore, but a Muslim religious state. At the same time, in India, uh, Prime Minister Modi has taken what has, for the last number of decades, been a a Muslim mosque and converted it back into a Hindu temple. And people have drawn this connection between these two, what were supposedly secular states, and are regressing into religious nationalist states. And they've sort of wagged their finger and said, see, this is what happens when religion gets involved with government. And they've taken the extrapolation from there and said, isn't this what what would happen if Christians got in control of government? If we let Christians bring their theological beliefs into government, wouldn't we have the same sort of nationalist regressive approach that would push minority groups out of the country? Well, is that what would happen? Is that what our faith says? that we're supposed to control with an iron fist the government? Is that what it means to be a Christian and have a political thought? Well, in our passage today, I think that you're going to see that Jesus has a very different picture of what it means to be a Christian in the world. I think that in these five verses, I hope, I I pray, that this will give you confidence in what it means to be a Christian in the public sphere. It'll give you hope for what it means 
that no matter what happens in November, that your hope is secure in Christ. And I hope it'll give you a vision for where we can go together as a Christian people. So let's, uh, let's look at the passage together, starting in verse 20. Luke 20, verse 20. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Right. Be- before we get to the part of the passage that deals with political thought and what it means to be a Christian in relationship to the governments of this world, I thought it would be worth spending a couple minutes to notice the hypocrisy that is driving this whole encounter between Jesus and his enemies. The enemies in this passage come from two unlikely corners. Um, in Luke, uh, in verse 19, Luke describes them as uh, the scribes and the chief priests. In other gospels, they're described as the Pharisees and the Herodians, but those aren't contradictory. Those are basically the same groups of people. In, in one corner, we have the scribes, the Pharisees, the people who see the government of Rome as the problem in the world that needs to be discarded. On the other side, we have the chief priests or the Herodians, the one who see the Roman government as an evil to be worked with in order to get their way in the world. And these two groups usually were at diametric odds of the political spectrum. We can sort of see this as, as the, the far right and the far left of their political day. And they usually have nothing in common or nothing they're going to agree on or nothing they're going to work with, except they both see Jesus as an existential threat and giving a very different picture of what it means to operate in this world. And so they agree to work together in order to drive out Jesus. By the way, I hope that as you notice that, you notice that means that that Jesus neither wants us to be a Pharisee or to be a Herodian. He neither wants us to see government as something to be avoided at all cost or to be something that we use in order for our own selfish aims. That if we take either the Herodian position or the Pharisee position, we're not taking Jesus' position. Well, they come to Jesus and they try to trap him. They try to entrap him in his words and they try to create a false dichotomy that he is going to have to take one side or the other and in so doing is going to leave himself out with no leg to stand on. But they do that through flattery and hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is when you pretend your motivation is something other than it really is. And as Americans, we love to call out people for being hypocrites. We love to say, oh, you said you were going to do that, but really your motivation's all about the other. But of course, hypocrisy is a very difficult thing to notice in another person. And that's why it's so helpful that Jesus points it out for us. He tells us that these spies were pretending to be sincere, but their goal was to catch Jesus in something he said. Jesus is in Jesus' insight into these spies tells us something important about our faith today. First off, if we take the position of Jesus, it tells us that there are people in this world who are going to be hypocritical and false about their motivations in order to create negative experiences for us. And we have to be wise as Jesus was about how to deal with the world. But I think much more important is the potential that we're like these hypocrites and that we see in their, in their earnest desire to protect themselves a willingness to go to great lengths to hide their motivations, to try to embarrass Jesus. And I hope with humility we see that and we say, God, please prevent that from being me. God, may that never be my intent. May that never be my attitude. May I never have that sort of hypocritical, false approach to life. 
God, would you give me this sort of attitude that is pleasing to you, not one of falsehood and, and hypocrisy, but of honesty and truth. So what's the trap that they try to lay out in front of Jesus? What's the, the thing they try to set him up to fail in? This is what they say in verse 21. They start by flattering him. They say, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly, and you show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? This question is meant to divide Jesus into two mutually exclusive options. Either he says, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, which would be seen as capitulating to a Roman invasion and making him not the Messiah the people had hoped for at all, or on the other horn of the dilemma, it put him as someone who defied the Roman government and drew the wrath of Rome. So what's it going to be? Do you want to defy the people or do you want to defy the government? They try to give Jesus only two options here. This topic of money, which is what tribute essentially is, taxes, money, is meant to be divisive. It's meant to divide the people and the government apart from each other. And they try to put Jesus in a horn of a dilemma in this regard. Because taxes were, were the whole reason Rome had invaded throughout the known world. They hadn't invaded to win hearts and minds or to give people a different vision of what they could be for themselves or govern themselves. No, those are all very modern sensibilities. They had invaded for wealth, for money, to be able to exploit the people. Now, we think of taxes in our culture as something we pay in our democratic process in order to get a benefit. And, you know, we pay our taxes ostensibly so that we have roads to drive on and we have schools to send our kids to and a military to protect us and a social safety net to provide for the less fortunate. And if we don't like how the government is spending our taxes, in a democratic society, we say we're going to form coalitions in order to vote out the people that are wasting our money and vote in someone new. Now, I realize that tax policy is never that simple, but, but that's the, the overarching system that we're in. That wasn't the system that Jesus' listeners were in. These taxes didn't benefit them at all. The tribute tax was money that was taken from the oppressed people of Israel and shipped all the way off to Rome. They didn't see any new roads out of it. They certainly didn't see any schools for their kids out of it. It was just money taken from them and used to support the Roman court and the Roman imperial religions, far away from anything they would benefit from and certainly at odds with their values and their faith. That's why it was such a divisive and touchy subject. In fact, one historian estimates that an average Jewish peasant of Jesus' day paid 30 to 40% of their income in taxes, seeing little to no benefit to their life on the ground. So you'd, be, uh, so you'd understand why this was something that Jesus' enemies thought that they could exploit, forcing him to take one position or another. Because when people in Jesus' position had say, don't pay taxes, that wasn't a First Amendment freedom of speech issue. That was an act of treason against Rome. In fact, just a few decades before, another uh, leader from Galilee had led on this, let's stop paying taxes to Rome thing, and he had been executed. And a few generations, a few decades after Jesus, when Israel would revolt against Rome, the first thing they would do is stop paying taxes and mint their own coins which ultimately led to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Why do I tell you all that? Because they're trying to put Jesus in an impossible situation. Um, and it wasn't just the situation, because Jesus responds in verse 24 
um, where he says, show me a denarius. In fact, the coin they would use to pay this tax, called a denarius, which represented about a day's wages, had the picture of the emperor himself on it. And it said, um, Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. What does that mean? It said the, the emperor's name, and then it said that he is the son of God, son of the divine. And on the back of it, uh, the emperor would mint a picture of his mother, and it would say Pontifex Maximus, or mother, uh, chief mother, ah, chief priest mother. Why is that important? These coins were nothing less than little idols themselves. Can you imagine being Jesus' listeners and being told that not only did you have to pay taxes, which, let's be honest, none of us like doing even today, but you had to pay taxes to a foreign government for services that you don't benefit from, that exacerbate your poverty, and you have to pay it using a coin that is a little mini idol, offensive to God. Nothing less than a violation of the command against graven images and against idols. So um, this is a huge, huge offense to the people of God. So how is Jesus going to respond? Look at verse 23. He perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. Now, if you've read this passage before, you know where Jesus is going. But imagine you don't for a second. I mean, you could easily expect that Jesus is going to say, see, this is the problem with taxes, that we have to support idolatry. You, you can't do these sorts of things. But Jesus actually goes in a different direction in verse 25. He says something brilliant. He says, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. This is in these few words, the basis of Christian political thought. That we are to offer to Caesar, or to the king, or to the president, or the prime minister, or the premier, or whatever governmental system we're part of, the things that rightfully belong to them, but that our ultimate allegiance is to God himself. And whatever people we go to, and Christians have become part of every nation on the earth, because we can exist in any political environment, we render as good citizens what we can and should to that government, while ultimately maintaining that our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus as our Lord. Now, some people have said that those are, those are opposites, right? That we can't have any earthly authority if we have Jesus as our king. And they've tried to, like the Pharisees, separate themselves from all the power structures of this world. And there are others who, like the Herodians, have said, no, the the king is the king, and our faith has to fit in underneath that. That the rulers and authorities of this world are the ultimate authority, and our faith can only exist in the pockets that it's allowed to by what the state demands. And Jesus gives a very different political picture. He says, no, I am Lord, but I allow these uh, authorities of the world to exist for a time, and you are to render unto them the things that they can rightfully demand of you. Now let's, let's break that up into a, a few pieces here. Why does Jesus tell us to render unto Caesars? Well, very literally, he says, because it has his picture on it. It's his coin. These coins, like, mon like money throughout the history of the world, even to now, belongs to the government that issues it. And if you have that coin, it's because in some way you are participating in the economy that this government has set up. 
And if they insist on having it back, you're to give it back to them. In fact, Jesus, in a, a subtle way, sort of exposes their hypocrisy when he says, show me a coin. Because right? if they have it, if they are carrying it with them, if they are participating in the Roman economy and benefiting from it, they are showing that as ardent as they may be in saying, we don't support Rome, they still on some level benefit from it. And so Jesus says, if it's their coin, give it back to them. If Caesar wants it back, give it back. Paul expands on this theme in Romans 13, when he says, for because of this, you also pay taxes. And listen to this, for the authorities are ministers of God. Authorities are the ministers of God. Man, that is not how often we talk about or experience our politicians, do we? And in verse 7, he says, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. Now, I I imagine that a lot of us are sort of getting our backs up at that verse because we say, well, maybe in Paul's day, the authorities were honorable and respectable and they deserved that sort of respect, but not in our political environment. Our politicians are fools and wicked and they don't deserve any respect. And I'm going to call them the most despicable things I want because they deserve it. Okay, think about what the Roman government was doing to the church at Rome when Paul wrote those words. Think about how the Roman Empire treated Christians for the first three centuries of our faith. Think about how the Roman government treated Jesus himself by sending him to the cross. Whatever you think about our political environment today, there is nowhere near that level of persecution. And yet the question is, what is the attitude of your heart and my heart? Are we quick to disparage those whom respect and honor is owed? Are we quick to disobey God's word about how we're to speak of those in high position? Do we see them as ministers of God? Or do we see God's providence as too small to control the authorities of this world? See, what Jesus is saying, and and also what Paul says later in Romans 13, is that God's providence extends over even the kingdoms of this world. That we render to Caesar what is Caesar's, we are doing so under the umbrella of God's authority in this world. That's why, um, that's why later in, uh, in or elsewhere in 1 Peter 2, Peter says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. When we honor politicians in our culture and in our country, when Christians in China honor authorities in the Communist Party, when those Christians in Turkey honor President Erdogan or Christians in India honor Prime Minister Modi, they don't do so because of those people, but because for the Lord's sake, we see God as the one who guides all. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to support every politician. That doesn't mean that we have to be in favor of every political party. That doesn't mean that we can't work ardently against policies that we think are offensive to God. But it does mean that we do so with respect and honor, seeing each person who is in office as an image bearer of God and even as a minister of God. And while we can depose ministers in the church and we can in the state, we do so with respect, not with shame. Government is a means of God's grace in the world. It's a way that, in a a very dim sense, sometimes more dim than others, 
It's meant to reflect God's care and justice for the world. See, when government's at its best, it distributes justice that should point us to the justice of God that we long for. When government is at its best, helping create liberty and freedom for everyone who's part of its uh, constituency, we see the freedom that we long for and hope for in Christ. When government is at its best, when it shows people what it means to be in a just and fair society, it creates a longing, can create a longing for us to find the just and fair society in the kingdom of God. Does government do that well? Well, Sometimes, sometimes more so, sometimes less so, sometimes terribly not so. But the reason that's so offensive to us, the reason poor government drives or gnaws at our soul is because we know there's something good that is potential out there, and we long for that. And we long for that not just for a human reason, but because we're made to look for that in Jesus and his kingdom. Civil authority can be a common grace. That is, it can show us our need for God's grace eternal. Now, like I said, this doesn't mean that we have to support every government in this world. It doesn't mean Christians in closed countries have to do what, what their secular or, or their antagonistic or persecutory governments are insisting of them. In fact, as Acts 5 makes clear, there is a time that our obedience to God and our obedience to the state have to come into conflict. Um, There's a famous story of Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who was the Archbishop of South Africa during a time of apartheid, and continually practiced civil disobedience against the apartheid government to try to get them to acknowledge the rights of black Africans. He was asked by a journalist who was scolding him during his release from prison, The journalist asked, how long do you intend to go on defying the South African government? And with a gentle smile, Archbishop Tutu replied, but we are not defying anyone. We are simply trying to obey God. We are simply trying to obey God. The goal is not to defy the government. The goal is to obey God. And when that involves defying, that's what has to happen. As Acts 5 says, when uh, Paul is commanded, or Peter and John are commanded to not preach anymore in the name of Christ, they say we must obey God rather than men. There are times that our commitment to God's authority comes in conflict with human authority when human authority gets too far outside of what God's commands are. But let's be honest, those times don't happen that, all that often. They don't happen all that often in the book of Acts, and they don't happen all that often today. Jesus' description is very different than what the world expects of us. And it's very different than what often our politicians expect of us. Jesus is making our faith not a small matter, but a global matter. Rather than following the Herodian concept of our faith to just exist on the pockets the government allows, Jesus says, no, your faith should be the overarching goal of your life. But also, rather than making it at odds with government, like the Pharisees expect, Jesus says, no, your faith over-encompasses and allows you and frees you to be obedient to the governments of this world. After all, during Jesus' time, there was a group uh, out at Qumran who said that there was no way they could operate in the authorities of this world. They had to be separate from government in order to exist and have faith in God. Jesus says, no, you don't have to be separate. You can obey Caesar You can obey the authorities of this world, but obey them only with your body 
leave your soul to God. That's the second part of verse 25. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. This is such a beautiful parallel because in it he contrasts the coin, which is, which is made in the image of Caesar. It has the picture of Caesar on it with you and with me who are made in the image of God. And he says, you can give your money to Caesar. You can give your uh, political allegiance to Caesar, but you as a person, your soul, who you are at your deepest level, that doesn't belong to any political party or any political structure. That belongs to God himself. This is an uh, important parallel for us to notice because as Paul will say in Romans 12:1, it is our spiritual act of worship to offer who we are um, at a core level to God. This is Romans 12:1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. I love this verse because it lays out what Jesus is talking about here so well that we can offer a lot of parts of who we are to the government of our day, to relationships of our day, to hobbies of our day, but at a core level, we are to render who we are to God that when we offer ourselves to him first, it orders all the things underneath it that are expected of us in this world. And as Jesus says in, in our passage today, that doesn't mean that there's nothing of us left to serve the authorities and po uh, political structures of our day. In fact, it frees us to be able to enter into political discussions without needing to find our identity there or things that only God can give there. It frees us to serve the state with a clear conscience knowing that we don't have to find from the state our ultimate set of values, our ultimate sense of identity, our ultimate sense of purpose. What Jesus tells us in these few verses, render unto Caesar, is that we are to give Caesar what he rightfully can demand of us, but not give him what he cannot rightfully demand of us. That is our worship, our sense of personhood, and our sense of hope that we can only find in Jesus Christ. We render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, taxes, political obedience, the things of this age, but we render unto God the things that are God's, our worship, our hope, our joy, our sense of value and structure in this world. And Jesus says that those two things can and should happen side by side. And you say, Bob, think about all the times those haven't happened. Think about all the times that the government has oppressed Christians and it does oppress Christians today. Could you really give this sermon in communist China today or in Turkey or India and in some of those places we mentioned before or northern Nigeria or northern Sudan? Could you really tell Christians to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's? And I think you could because I think we see in Jesus' example and in Jesus as a person a perfect picture of what this means. Because Jesus himself knew what was in the hearts of men, Scripture says. And he didn't entrust himself to the hands of men, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly and to God himself. And I think the same thing is true for us. What's the worst that Caesar can do to us? Can Caesar kill the body? Well, we have hope in heaven. Can Caesar take all our resources? We trust in a God who has the cattle on a thousand hills. Can Caesar cause us to have a miserable life on earth? 
Of course, he did for Jesus and he can for us as well. But ultimately, our hope is not here, but in the world to come. And because our hope is in God and our soul's allegiance is into God, that frees us to even defy at times when Caesar gets out of line with what God commands. Because our allegiance is not to him at all, but to God himself. We see this really clear in the book of Revelation. And next week, a friend of our church will be speaking to us for the sermon from a country on the other side of the world, where Christians for years have found it difficult to navigate some of these questions. And he's going to talk about some of the passages in Revelation where the church cries out that Jesus is Lord and where Caesar is not the ultimate authority, but that their hope is in Christ. I hope you don't miss that. We're only going to be able to have that sermon up online for about 48 hours out of respect for the security issues in place. So I hope you'll watch it on Sunday morning or Sunday night because we'll have to take it down uh, pretty quickly after that. But I hope that this will be sort of the first part and his will be sort of the second part as we think through what it means to set apart Jesus as Lord even as the political systems of our day come and go and how godly they can be. Well, let's finish this with some application. How are we supposed to apply this to life today? Well, the most obvious example is pay your taxes, right? I know it's not April 15th, but render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. That includes our taxes that we owe, that includes our political participation that is reasonable for a Christian. That includes our, in our democratic process, our participation as voters and citizens in this world and advocates for values that reflect the heart of God and biblical values. But probably more important to me and, and closer to my heart is to render unto God the things that are God. Have you made political affiliation more important than your affiliation with God? Where do you find your primary sense of identity and purpose and longing in this world? Are you rendering unto Caesar that which is not Caesar's to give? Are you giving giving Caesar in this life things that only belong to King Jesus? Are you giving him a sense of who you are as a person, what creates community for you, your purpose and your mission in life? Reserve those for God alone. And when we find those in God, it frees us to practice politics as a Christian should in any system that this world affords. Let's close our time together in prayer. Jesus, we are grateful that you are Lord, that you are Lord during the Roman Empire's rise and fall, that you are Lord as empire states rose and fell throughout the Middle Ages and throughout the Enlightenment period, that you have been Lord throughout the American Revolution and throughout the rise and challenges of our own country. And you will be Lord long after we have gone to be with you. God, would you help us to have an attitude that reflects our trust and hope in you as we interact with the political systems of this day. God, I pray especially for um, those who are listening and for our church as we lead up to this presidential election. I know there are a lot of forces in this country and in this world that want to divide us, that want to put us on the same sort of horns of a dilemma that these hypocrites did to Jesus, that their intent is to use you, not to worship you, but to use biblical truths to try to divide Christians against each other. And God, I imagine the enemy would would love to do that, would love to use this election to cause us to embarrass you and to bring shame on your name. God, I pray that 
Um, Come November, come December and January, we would look back and be proud as a church and as Christians with how we navigated this time, that we would say that we set you apart as Lord first, and that when we look back on these days and these weeks, um, we would say, God, I am so proud of how how I, I treated you as preeminent in my life. It's in your name we pray. Amen.